I knew that I was going to do something, and whatever it's going to be, it was going to be of service to another human being. I knew that for sure, but I didn't know what. I wanted to be uncomfortable. I'm not a sugar-coat person. Um, I wanted to be really uncomfortable because that's what happens when you tell you when you tell the truth. And I wanted to be um, full of hope, full of frustration, full of joy, full of anger because we don't we're not able to express our anger. Uh, full of everything, everything that makes us human. Welcome to The Spark, the podcast which sparks your imagination. My name is Petra Zlotewska and I'm the host of the show. This is a podcast where we do some mental archaeology. We dig deep into the imaginations of some fascinating people, how they've navigated lessons in their lives as well as in their careers. The guests on the show are going to share with us their secrets of how they connect the seemingly unconnectable dots between resilience, passion and creativity. I suppose you could call it a crash course in how to be a human. I used to be a lawyer who worked in Sydney and then I swapped the Bondi latte for a bicycle in Berlin, Germany, a city I never dreamt that I'd end up in and I stayed for 10 years. Now that I'm back in Sydney, I have launched The Spark and it's my hope that this podcast can be a place to share inspiring stories, a place to uplift and a space to spark all of you amazing listeners to start your own conversations, to help you make a positive life or work change and to empower you to challenge the status quo. Well, I'm so excited to introduce our guest for today, the first official episode of The Spark. Aminata Conte Bijay became a casualty of the civil war raging in Sierra Leone. Kidnapped by rebel forces, upon her release, she was granted refugee status in Australia, making her the first Sierra Leonean refugee woman. Since her arrival here, Aminata has forged an unstoppable life as a wife mom, maternal health advocate and now author. She founded the Aminata Maternal Foundation to support and empower women and children in Sierra Leone. Her extraordinary autobiography, Rising Heart, was released on the 25th of August by Pan Macmillan. And I could not imagine having a more perfect first guest to have on the show than Aminata. She ignites a sense of hope and possibility in all who meet her. I simply love talking to Ami and I'm sure that you will find her energy as infectious as I do. It's my absolute pleasure today to introduce to you our guest Aminata Conte Bijet. And Aminata is a person that wears many, many hats. I first met her three years ago at the launch for her documentary Daughter of Sierra Leone. And since that time, Aminata has taken her foundation, which is the Aminata Maternal Foundation, from strength to strength. She's the CEO, and we're meeting here in Lavender Bay, in Bay 10, in this amazing space. And not only is Aminata the CEO and the face behind the foundation, she's also a soon-to-be published author, and we'll speak about her book in just a moment, and a mother of two, and just an all-round amazing woman. So I'd like to welcome Aminata to our show I have to say when I met you three years ago and I was there for the launch of the documentary, that whole room was just full of people crying. It was a sea of tears, but also 
a very collective celebration of what happened and the fact that you came to Australia and that you're here and your story for us to be able to be witness to your story and take us back to 1999 and tell us a little bit about your journey from 1999 to 2020 sitting here in Lavender Bay. (laughs) First of all, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. You taking the time and also just being interested, um, showing an interest in uh, in what we do in the foundation and also in my life. So I've been now in Australia for, of course, 20 years. I came to Australia 2000. I was born originally from Sierra Leone. I was born in Sierra Leone, Freetown, the capital city, which is Freetown. And I'll go just go straight into what happened around that time. So in 1999, January 6, um, the rebels that I've that been fighting in, in Sierra Leone for a very long time had an opportunity to enter the capital city, which is Freetown. So during that time, it was very, it was one of the most intense time during the war because they've been trying for nine years to just enter this small city. And um, we, uh, of course, uh, if people know about Sierra Leone during the Civil War, there was a, a lot of horrible things and vicious things that happened. Um, girls being raped, civilians being chosen for as a, a human shield. So when the rebels fight between the government, they will use the civilians um, so that the rebels would not get killed. But uh, my, in my story, what happened was um, there was a certain time when it got really bad and the rebels came into our house and then they asked everybody to come out. And there was this little field next to our house, like a little compound, but um, next to next door. And I, I, standing there, there was a lot of people, like hundreds of people, maybe close to a thousand. And I was holding my father's hand. My dad had Parkinson, so his hands were shaking at the time. And I was holding it just to keep it still. And then I, I really remember this guy, one of the rebels guy, looked at me. As soon as he did, I knew straight away the way he looked at me that he was going to come take me. And as he was walking towards me, um, when I realized that he was coming, I let go of my dad's hand. So by the time he said, you... As soon as he said to uh, to me, you come here, I let go of my dad's hand and walk towards him. Um, I think for me, my story, that has always been um, the most hurtful part because I grew up with my dad and he was the most incredible human being I would ever meet in this planet. And But he was so protective of his children, but mostly of his girls. Um, we, we, we grew up very disciplined in... He was very strict, make sure that we go to have the best education. And um, to, for, for me, I think that was the most really very hurtful to, to know that he had protected me all his life. And this time there was a almost like a sin that happened. I had to protect him because um, the reason why I let go of his hand because he would have fought, uh, he would have done something, and they would have either killed him or probably asked me to shoot him or rape me in front of him. So there, were this, there was this uh, scenario that we know of that, that had happened. I didn't want that to happen to him. So <coughs> I didn't look back on my dad to see what had happened to him and leaving him. And then I walked towards and I just, um, the guy that kidnapped me, his name um, is Tarami, and just walked and took me away. So I did not see my dad for 
I don't really know how long because I thought it was three months, but most of my friends that I was kidnapped with think it was seven months. It was more, but I cannot have, I don't have any rec uh, uh, remembrance of the particular time, but it was one of the most intense time during the war. Living around dead body, using dead body as a human shield, so that's something when things will not happen, and constantly being, uh, being raped and uh, being used as a, as a um, human shield. So all those things happen in one which uh, it's quite um, remarkable that I'm here. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then fleet after I got released and part of my release was an exchange. I got part of an exchange between the rebels and the government, run out of food and medication and they, they decided to release some of the children. So not my age, I was 20 years old at that time. Um, release some of the children and then the, the government would give them food. So I became the face of that. I was given a letter to the to give to the government. So my father found out that I was alive when on TV, on television, in my whole family and friends. So after my release, I just flew to Guinea Conakry, which was our neighboring country, and the UNHCR had heard of my story. So what they were trying to do was to get me out of the country right away because the man that kidnapped me, Darami, was still looking for me. Mm -hmm. So they had to get me out. Um, uh, and in, in, in Africa in general, and uh, that's how I end up in Australia. And the funny story is um, uh, I've never heard of Australia before. <laughs> I'm very familiar with the UK, um, America. My dad was a businessman going to Germany, Holland, but Australia was the first time, and I deliberately chose Australia because I knew there was not a large community of my people here because I didn't want to be recognized as the person on TV. Mm. So that's how I came to Australia. Mm. <laughs> Not yes. because of any love of Tim Tams or koalas no. or ko kangaroos jumping and no. skipping around. I didn't even know that exists. So. <laughs> so when was the first time you saw koala? Well, I, I saw koala in, in the zoo. And, and when I came, it, it was really interesting because when I came to Australia, I went to school and all the kids were asking me about seeing animals because I think that's what, people think about when they think of Africa, mm. poverty, corruption, animals. And they were asking me if I've seen lions, if I touch lions and all this thing. And it's it's so incredible because I get to see those things in Tarango Zoo. Mm. And, <laughs> <laughs> so that's the, <laughs> that's, the, that's the irony of things. So I, I get to see animal, proper animals in Australia, not in Africa. But it's exactly what you just touched on, this stereotypes that yeah. we all have about each other, that yes. you had people, these kids in your school, and mm. you came to a school in southern Sydney initially? Yes, yes. Thought about poverty, corruption, and animals. Yes. Likewise, you didn't know really much about Australia. So, no, I mean, no. how have you felt kind of breaking out of these stereotypes and doing your maternal health advocacy and your work, which cuts across so many different social levels yeah. and how going back to your roots has actually helped you kind of you know teach people to break stereotypes i think stereotypes have already made peace with that will always happen mm. people still ask you questions even though we have the internet now we have social media and all that people still ask you questions instead of taking time to go learn about a country so i i think you just gotta rise above it people don't want to be educated especially mm. when you're in the west when they feel like they know better than you I've owned that space, been in Australia for um, 20 years now, and telling my story. For me, that's how I've chose to live my life, to really take that opportunity mm. to, because a lot of people, a lot of people from different parts of the world, Chinese or Indians, have 
don't have the access. privilege access mm. to, to really correct people mm. and when people when you have people that feel like they're always accurate you really don't have a space to so you have to have a strength to do that but it, that is a daily um fact and we all have that in our life that we we assume for others but there are particular groups that get it more mm. and which is sad but um I hope our children in different in generation will become better in learning more and actually having a conversation to somebody and saying, where where are you from? And what does that look like? Let me know. You know, ask them. People don't have the time to ask people and have a conversation. So they just put their tag on on you and that's it. And so, this is so true. You identified putting tags on. But mm-hmm. one thing that is really an objective fact is that Sierra Leone still has the highest infant mortality rate yes. in the world, yes. even now in 2020. Aminata has yes. two children, beautiful <laughs> yes. Matisse and Sarafina, and this her foundation is like her third child. Can you tell us what you're doing in your home country? So um, the, the, um, the foundation basic work is to really um, educate and empower women and because I truly believe that you got to educate people first before you empower them, mm. um, and and also provide um, the the resource that is needed, and the help that is needed. That I believe is a basic human right when it comes to being a, a mother, having a child. Syria didn't have the highest infant mortality death. We had a war, a civil war for eleven years, and then we went into the. Um, we started doing really well into 2010, started doing really well. Then we had Ebola that came oh. and just, just destroyed the whole country and put it back to next to nothing. And I always say to people when I talk about Sierra Leone, it, it, it's such a forgotten country. They've gone through so much, but has not had the support. It's a forgotten country. So for I think for me, I take it really seriously how I tell my story and I tell this women's story with dignity because I've never been more prouder <laughs> to be a Sierra Leonean than when I went back and see the strength of my people. There's poverty, there's all this thing, but there's so much hope and there's so much resilience that you're there. Um, I know people use that all the time and it's an example for when you see poverty in places like India or all these other places. But for me being in Sierra Leone when I'm there physically and see children just going on their way or they will be standing on a slump but they will have the biggest smile and sometimes you almost have to hit me that these ch- children or these people do not know anything better you know when you're in a in a life sometimes and you don't know anything good okay, there's anything better than what you're living so that's how they live so this is good for them they are just full of joy and if somebody can die in this world and full of that kind of joy that is a really big that is a that is that is a good way to die and but it's maternal health the reason why i'm so passionate about it is because it's something that can be fixed it's not a war you don't have to you don't have to say oh you, somebody can't come to you like i have a i'm pregnant there's pregnancy there all you need to do is for them to go have the same experience as any mother in australia or in any part of the western world and to have that baby and they will go on living and I, for me so I always say that the way where, where we have so much in um, a problem with um, human rights I always think that that, has, that problem has started because we have not really touched on that 
Uh, my daughter had seven doctors in the hospital in Australia mm. to make sure that she was alive, I was alive. Yeah. And a child would just die, the mother would just die just like that. Mm. And how come we have so much, you know? How come we, it's just a basic human right. How come we have so much, how, how, how come we can't give that? And, and if we value human rights in that depth, I think if every child comes into this world, I know that they come out of this world with a, that kind of dignity. I'm extremely passionate, as you can tell, about it, but I just feel like it's a, it's a place that we have to go back and touch on in all this organization that we have, that every mother should, there should not be no any fistula. The reason why there's mm. fistula is because a mother can go into labor for, we saw a 14-year-old girl that went into labor for 12 days. 12 days. Mm. Like That's here in Australia, unheard of. you go home. Like my, my, I was late to give birth to my daughter. When I went to the hospital, and voila, she came up. That should not be happening because it's preventable. You know, it's something we can prevent. And I think we can, we can, this we can do for sure. Men can do, women can do. We all came out of a woman. That is it. We <laughs> that did. Is it. So yeah. I think it's not, it's not a, a lot of time people ask me, what is your target group? Who do you target? I'm like, no one, student, university, everybody. This is a, a, a world crisis. It's not a, a woman issue. Just do a woman event to talk to just women. I think men should know about, they know that women come, and children come from vagina. They should know. They know that topic very well. They should be comfortable to hear that. And I think when we come to that body language with women, how our part, we get really, okay, this is something that we should just do for a woman. I think it's a conversation that should reach out to everybody. And you really touched the nail on the head there about this idea of hope and joy and empowerment. You know, these three words mm -hmm. really sum up you as a person, but also what the story that you are telling about your own experience, but also you're almost like an ambassador for these young women and this hospital that you're helping to ensure that they have these safe births. But this is the thing. I mean, a lot of people just are uncomfortable discussing this. And maternal health is not just a human and health issue, but it's really, um, it's the foundation. I mean, I studied human rights, but when you're studying this from a very theoretical academic point yeah. of view, you're right. You don't get taught in the university about access to basic maternal health yeah. because you start learning about economic rights yes. or women's rights or yes. gender equality or racial discrimination it's yes. like you're there's three steps ahead and you're so correct when you say actually the starting point mm -hmm. is take a step yes. back and start with access to basic maternal yes. health so yes. can you maybe just explain to us what is a fistula because i'm not sure that everyone is aware so a fistula is when a woman and a um uh, a woman goes a pregnant woman goes into labor mm -hmm. and um, and then, as you know, the baby keep pounding through mm -hmm. the, uh, the pelvic keep, pelvic floor. Yeah, yeah. you keep pounding to come out because that's you the time for you to be pushed. But, be, but because you do not have the there's no skills. Most people have the traditional birth in their home, and you've been pushing for a long time. Yeah. So as the baby's head keep pushing, it's actually breaking the birth canal. The birth canal, and that breaks. And then, uh, and if you go into labor for three, four days. And what happened is the baby will eventually die. So you keep, you urinate constantly. So there's mm. no holdage there anymore. Okay. Like when I have baby here, I have to go to pelvic floor exercise. Yeah. To even when I, I had like a natural birth and, and, and even when you have caesarean, sometimes people have it. But there you, you can't hold it anymore and you smell. So is there a stigma attached to oh, this post, it, it, in it, the postnatal, postpartum 
stigma it's, in this it's, traditional it's, society? It's incredibly dehumanizing. Mm. I have never felt so... I, I, when I was kidnapped, I was raped. I, I've never been ashamed of that. Never. Because it was something that was done to me. I grew up with the most incredible man. I've never be. I've told my story every every platform. My dignity has never been taken away because of what happened. What somebody felt like they took from me. They might have took something from me, but they didn't break me. But when you meet another human being, a woman, that because of having a baby, you see them lying there, and I get emotional every time when I talk about this. We met a woman. We have a little documentary about it on SBS. Zainab, when we met this woman lying, she was so broken. Not even poverty, not even starvation can make you that broken. Mm. Because she smelled. She smelled. She's lying on the plastic on the bed and they brought her from the village. And this woman simply explained that she went into labor. They didn't have money. They took the, um, the village took three days to raise money to buy petrol to drive to take, yes to take the motorcycle and the motorcycle to take it to the to get the ambulance so by the time they come that had happened and that's just to get maybe a hundred dollars maybe less even to get the ambulance but for me what really struck me about her her brokenness you cannot afford to see another human being that broken there was almost like a thread that went through me and her when i saw her and what she said when she was, it was not like a crime. You can see all the shame. She's so small. This thing have made her so small. And then she, when we asked her, not why she's crying, but to express, and she said her children can't eat her food because she smelled that bad. How can we live in a society like this? Only women. Why women? We fought for so many things. Maybe we should go back to this and get it from there because... We should not make another woman suffer like that. It doesn't matter, despite of where they're living. And I, and again, if any, if this was a man issue, few shit would have ended. Mm, you're right. Because it's preventable. No man want to see another man with no dignity. If I ever tell Zenab's story and I don't feel like I'm feeling as I tell it now, I will step down. Because for me, Zenab's story just. I just, yeah, sorry. <laughs> it just, like, we should not. It should not happen. Um, it's not right. It's really not right. We should go back to this play, this uh, this beginning, mm. and really try to look back at things and get those women represent us in a really dignif dignifying way. But I think w we, we witnessed this fistula being done. It's 45 minutes. Procedure. Minutes, you witness a real. If you don't believe in miracle, this is a miracle. And does it happen whilst the baby's still in the birth canal, no, 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 or once the baby's, the baby's out? Out. out. And she's ah. lived with it. Some people live with it for forty years. The urination. Oh my gosh, yes. the constant urination. Yes, so she's been living with it for three years. Three years. So we go to the villages and look for women and bring them. And we witness Zanab, um, uh, um story in surgeon being done. I, I literally, I cannot. We could not blink our eyes because our eyes were so focused. In and we see these civilian women who have been trained by doctors, Westerners, doing this with wow. so much calmness, laughing. And forty-five minutes, you give a woman's dignity back. Mm. Two days later, we're passing in the hospital. We're walking and talking, and I, this person start calling me. I mean, Ata. I mean, but I could not recognize her. And then I went close and said, "It's Zainab." 
her smile was up to her ears. Like she, nothing. She didn't ask for nothing. And she would go back to her village and they would do a celebration for her. So her village did not abandon her because they don't love her. It's because she smelled. But she herself cannot run away from her smell. No. For me, that's the power of that. That's the message of that story. If you cannot remove yourself from what that is and your children cannot come close to you. And Zainab just smiled. She didn't say what she just says. It's me, Zainab. And she just smiled. She didn't ask for one dollar. Nothing. Because she's looking forward to go back. And she knows the celebration that will happen. But why does it have to get to that? Yeah, that's the best question. Why does it have to get to that? And here we are, we're in the middle of this coronavirus and global attention, money, billions being spent to find a vaccine. And we're still talking about this very preventable problem yeah. that affects so many will, millions of young girls mostly because in the societies in which you know these yeah. problems occur yeah. and in your home country most of these girls the average age of pregnancy first birth mm. is what like 15 yes, 14 15 no, yeah 15 but also 12 we have yeah, girls okay. 10 years old who are giving birth So part of the work that you're doing, fundraising actively in Australia and getting your message out, there's this message of hope that mm. this is preventable. Um, when you part and your partner, the hospital in Freetown, yeah. is all the funds basically are going to train the nurses yes. or the midwives, staff to make this access to this procedure basically yeah. for free. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the activities that you're kind of fundraising for and some of you do some really amazing you yes. do the swag the, the swagger <laughs> party and yes. lunch well, tell I, us some more about that I, for us it was very important my chair uh, the chair of the foundation penny gastel who we are like we, we're both like the parent <laughs> because we 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 do we work incredibly well together but one of the and she comes from a human rights background and development and one thing that we really wanted to not have in the foundation is to raise uh, uh, to raise funds and tell people all this horrible story because mm. it's not true. I know that's what raise money. Yeah, I want to give hope to people who gives me money. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I do, and I don't want to tell all this crazy because when you go to Syria, there's so much joy. So we have this really strong value on our board on the organization that. We are gonna tell the story of the life in Sierra Leone. We want people to know how people live, how they enjoy. So when we put events, we make sure that we we tell you there's a problem, there's a solution, but we wanna give you the lifestyle of Sierra Leone. How how in the in the middle of a, a, a slum, you can see somebody dressed so well, so so they put so much effort, and that is them standard. Despite my poverty. And putting their dignity on the on their shoulder and carry that, and that for us, I think it's it's it might not really make us raise so much money at this time, but I think people learn to appreciate that, to learn the culture and how people live, but also to know that these women and these men and this the and they are so capable of doing things on their own. They're able to do so. Let's give them the tools so they can build their life instead of going there and telling them what to do or how to live or how they should run things. Let's give them the tools for them to build their life. Our hospital, the uh, Abadi Women's Center uh, that we partner with, um, 
95% of the staff are Sierra Leonean. Our partner, and she does not hire any Western to go and run the mm. hospital. It should be run by the people themselves. Yeah. And that's how you make a change. Because mm. when those people go to their villages, when they go to their community, they will continue to... Even if it's traditional birthing, we, I mean, in the days of time, there was never a hospital. Yeah. You know? It was all home it was all birth. Home birth. Yeah. But give them the right tools. Give them the cleanest tools to do that properly. So for for us, what we do, we we, ta we tackle every part of it. We tackle education. We work with girls. We try to put them back to school. And we try to be like a peace influence between their family who have kicked them out because they're going to get pregnant. And they can, the parents can have another person to feed. So we go back and we, we work with schools. So we it's it, it incredible. It's not just an hospital like Anvil. It's like a universal. <laughs> it's like a universal city to just tackle different things. And it's mm -hmm. not about us being big. It's about just the little people that you are change life. You're changing. They yeah. go and change back. Yeah. Like when we were in Sierra Leone in 2019 in May, most of the young girls that we met um, who were pregnant, the teenage pregnant girls, because after the Ebola, they were school off for 15, for 16 months, and these girls just felt pregnant because there was nothing to do. <laughs> and most of these young girls have come, you can see them so broken, and you can see their eyes like a little cherry because they're so young, and they're lost. They do not know where baby come from. They just find out they're pregnant because their breast is coming mm -hmm. out. Their breast is coming out for the first time. And then we have this other project where we try, we, most of them were in a very desperate situation, were sleeping in the street with their pregnancy. We put them in a home where we train them. And I swear to you, we, we met these girls who you were asking, what do you want to do when they grow up? Which is a silly question to ask somebody, but you just zoom for the people to dream. And they will say, I want to sell peanuts. I want to sell banana. I want to sell this. And then you go to the hostel where this girl that we've trained for like nine months, <coughs> they are saying they want to be a minister, a president. I want to be a teacher. I want to be a doctor. And, and for me, what was so powerful, now being, I've been in the West for 20 years, is how it, uh, it's so hard to convince somebody, to, to empower somebody, to even go um, to change your lifestyle. While you have a young teenage girl who do who grab those six months, you know, they have limited time, and change their mind. I've never seen a transformation that powerful in my life. And they, yes, they are saying they want to be a doctor. They might not be a doctor, but you know what? When you speak words and you put you put life into it, and they for the first time can say what they want to be, and they know there's no doubting. And who knows what these girls are gonna be? Who knows? Who knows who will be the president? For them to have that confidence, that I wanna be a president. I wanna be a doctor. I wanna be a teacher. And while before they were saying I wanna sell mango, you know, in six months we have really change them, not change them, but give them the life of possibility. You plant seed in hope in their life. And when you plant a seed, like even if it's a mustard seed, you plant it, it grows. And people, that's what we all need. And I think it's so powerful to see that. So powerful. Absolutely yeah. powerful. And that's the thing about the planting the seed. It's got to be nurtured and yes. watered and mm -hmm. loved and grown. And so much about your work is empowerment and yeah. these messages and it's beyond the message you know it's real mm. tangible outcomes you yeah. know, you're transforming these girls lives and that's what we were saying before um over lunch you know you can't be what you can't see yeah. and language is so powerful it's yes. the tool of communication yeah. we live in a world where we speak words we're not using sign language unless mm. we actually are deaf but yes. most of us are not so words carry power and yes. weight and 
through these messages of empowerment, mm. you've said yourself, you see this transformation take place. Mm, yeah. So can you just, in the last couple of questions that yes. I have, you took a trip back last year, yes. and then three years before that, when you were um, in 2016 yes. back in Sierra Leone with the team from SBS to film your documentary, what was that like for you going back? Uh, when I went back, I think I was not expecting the the the, the response that I got from my, my country people because I honestly, I'm... Honestly, one of those, but I don't do things to get um, recognized. Mm-hmm. I really don't. I just wanted to do this. Um, um, what what I didn't expect was the reaction from that they used to seeing Western people going to help. White people. Yes, yeah. white people. Doing used, good. Doing, doing good. good being a, Taking savior, photos. Savior, yeah. Savior, basically. Um, they used to see that, and they were very. When they heard of my name, they, I think even the doctors or the, they Google. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you? Yes, and they, and they were not sure because, like, they were like, "She's young. She, she should be partying." Like, they did not believe that that was me. <laughs> that was uh, uh, me there, and they were so proud. But not just because I have gone and done that, because there's nothing that we can do by ourselves. Well, because I took my Australian community with me, mm. and I took, uh, and it, so it was overwhelming for me. I didn't know how to receive it because I, I didn't expect it, and I really don't expect that. I was I'm doing something um, because I know that I can, and I've given, I have a platform to do something. I believe that when you have a platform, you have to take responsibility of it. I think that really, really struck me, and they were so joyful. They thought it was actually one visit, so I said, "No, we come back. This is a partnership," and they were so. Um, I could see the difference because I can see when Western, when white people go, when they do what they do, and it's a good thing, but they, they get so, um, so ex- they, they get so, the gratitude is not the same of a gratitude when you're grateful to somebody. It's mm-hmm. like you've got to hold on to that gratitude, you've got to know, they, like you, it's almost like they're a savior. They yeah. hold on to these people like they're a savior. Mm-hmm. And I think for them to see one of theirs that have come here and go with them, with my, my Australian community, because now I have this home here, um, it was something that they were very, um, they were extremely proud of. Mm. So I didn't expect that. That really mm. um, shook me. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm just here doing something <laughs> that I feel like people should do. And that's the way I was brought up, that when you, you get, you give. And that's the way my dad taught me, so I'm just doing that. And I don't have any families in Sierra Leone. When I go, I don't see too much, but I don't have any, anyone. So I'm just doing this for me to um, create something that the next generation will take on and build something much better than what I've done. So, yeah. It's always easy to look a bit into the future, but how about your, what advice would you give to, let's say, your 25-year-old self? Because this year we're both turning 40. Oh, yes, I'm <laughs> what, so excited. What, so am I. We're both, I think, we're the only people who are going to be excited about turning 40 <laughs> in 2020. I know. And everyone else is turning off their phones and hiding. Yeah. It'll be us to doing. We'll do our own swagger oh, party. Yes, we'll do it. So what, what, what kind of piece, main piece of advice do you think you'd give your 25-year-old self? Um, if you could write a love letter back to Aminata. Oh, I have to say... So, dear Aminata. Dear Aminata. Oh, no, no. Um, I would say... I, I, I think I would say whatever you were doing when you were 25, you should, you should, I'm glad that you did it. Okay. Yeah. I honestly, I will not change any experience because every experience has made me the person that I am. Um, I've lived a life that I've really um, embraced myself and loved myself and really 
get to know myself and I did that in that stage and also care for another human being that has always been there I will not have changed I will not change give me any, any advice to change that all the mistakes I'm here today because of that so yeah I think that's what I'm gonna you should have done exactly what you did <laughs> honestly that is very honest advice without any sugar coating no icing no cherry on top and just before we both have to run for the school pickups, I just wanted to ask about your up-and-coming book. So, Rising Heart, could you tell us a little bit about your book and how it came to be? Um, my book, I think since I started sharing my story like 12 years ago through a UN platform, a lot of people asked me to write a book. But I really did not want to write a book about a refugee story because my life was not just a refugee story. I had a, I wanted to a book that would educate people that about... Um, uh, African girl who had a really good life. My mm. life materialistically compared to Australia is still the same the way I live in Africa, in, in Sierra Leone. And I wanted a book be, uh, uh, and I wanted to have create something. I don't know what mm. it was going to be. And inside of me, I knew that I was going to do something. And whatever it's going to be, it was going to be of service to another human being. I knew that for sure. Since I was little, I knew that I was going to do something that was going to serve another human being. But I didn't know what. So I was waiting for that to come, where, whatever platform I was. So um, writing, it, it, when I made a decision to write a book, uh, I, I, I was in this place where I was like, okay, I've gone through all this experience in my life. I'm a mother. Uh, I've started this foundation. I have something. And I, ha- I want to tell my story where women um, who... Um, somebody in my age or somebody's not in my age um, um, fathers because of my experience with my dad I want every single person to see themselves in that mm-hmm. in the book I really do and I thought it would be it would be important if I'm in a place like in Australia to tell you know just go like oh have you seen that book it's about a refugee book and I want the experience to be mixture I want it to be uncomfortable yeah. I don't want I'm not a sugar coat person <laughs> Um, I want it to be really uncomfortable yeah. because that's what happens when you tell your, when you tell the truth. Yeah. And I want it to be um, full of hope, full of frustration, full of joy, full of anger because we don't we're not able to express our anger. Uh, full of everything, everything that makes us human. So for me, even coming up to have the name Rising Art, I, I wanted the name to represent a unifying a, a symbol that really makes us like when you see it Rising, it's not like wow we all have that and mm. and the rising part for me came to we wake up every morning despite what we're going through but to to wake up and rise up and and go to a meeting go to a work that you don't like it takes a, a lot i want to i want to really acknowledge that, that we all have that in us and we can do whatever we set our mind on but i don't want it to be like a flurry like kind of like a motivation that i want it to be realistic mm. Yeah. Um, that I've come through that and and all pain is is different but it is pain but whatever you decide to do with your life you make that decision so mm. you, you only can make that decision to rise and do that and as long as you're living and you're breathing there's still hope for us to do that so that's really where I hope that I, I, my prayer is for that to really resonate to every single person um, to every every father that, that I would read that, and from a father point of view, the relationship that I have with my dad and with my husband, and for that to re- be relatable, you know. So it doesn't matter what part of the world I, I would have come from Sierra Leone, and mm-hmm. you would have you dad here in Australia, but it's the same. 
you know so yeah so it's been a it's been a overwhelming very process i'm still getting used to the author name <laughs> being a called author but um it's been a really experience and full of wonders but i've grown and i've learned as every day that i that i learn and 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 become try to become a better version of myself but not mostly but not, not what of what somebody expects me to be or what i feel like is right so yeah so yeah, rising heart. <laughs> so rising heart is exactly as Aminata's saying. It's it's just, it's an uncomfortable memoir full of hope with a message for pushing through pain and using pain to basically to help you be the best version of yourself. And yeah. I think that is a message that is just very difficult for many people to yeah. grapple with because whenever someone thinks of a painful situation, they just automatically want to escape from it yeah. and not embrace pain. And I agree. I think. When you embrace where you're at, you propel yourself. I just wanted to take the opportunity to thank you so much for coming to the show and for speaking and just, Aminata, when you are with her, her energy, it's beams of not just sunlight, it's like a galaxy, it's it's a solar system. She just is the embodiment of hope and positivity and just can do and um i would encourage everyone to have a look at the website of the foundation which is www.aminatamatonafoundation.org otherwise you can also connect with aminata and the foundation on social media so again thank you so much and on a rainy sydney afternoon and it's been my absolute pleasure thank you so much amy okay it's been such a joy thank you Well, that's a wrap on the interview with Aminata, the official episode numero uno of The Spark. Thank you so much for joining in. It's been an incredibly fun process up until now, slightly frustrating at times, I do have to say. And I think, would it not be for my sound editor, Darcy, I probably might be losing my mind right at this point. So if you have any feedback or suggestions, please jump onto the show page and tell me. Likewise, if there's something that has sparked your interest or ignited a new idea or inspiration, I would love to hear it. And if you have any ideas for people who you would like to hear on the show, please let me know. Aminata's book, Rising Heart, was released at the end of August by Pan Macmillan and is available now at all good bookstores and online. And I have linked it in the show notes. Follow our production along at Instagram, which is the underscore spark podcast. And check out all the show notes on the website at shows.acast.com forward slash the dash spark forward slash. Thank you so much again for joining in on the first official episode. I'm Petra Zlatevska, your host. Keep sparking. Keep sparking.